And I believe there's an antidote once you really open up the Word of God to that spell, and that antidote is gratitude. Gratitude, once you understand it, it starts bubbling up inside of you and affects everything. The thing about gratitude, though, you can't force it. You can't demand it. You can't tell people, you need to learn to be happy. Gratitude is something that, just like a well, springs up. Where you no longer grumble, you start appreciating. You no longer demand, but you serve. Because you want to. It's the result of gratitude. So how do you receive gratitude? And my, I'm going to argue that gratitude is all about looking back and understanding why you have gotten here and everything that led you to this point was a gift of God's grace and mercy. That really you don't deserve to be here. And I'll show you what I'm talking about. If you can open up to Romans chapter 12, verse 1, it talks about your perspective and your perspective should lead you to want to live a pleasing life. So in other words, gratitude should bubble up inside of you where you can't not help being godly. Here's what it says. It begins by saying, in Romans 12, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, and I'm reading from the NIV, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Holy, that means separated for him, and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. So he says three things. He's, he's urging. So this has an emotional side to it. He's really adamant about this. I told the first ser uh, service, I wish I had the ability to get up here and when I preach, it just it would just force you to do what I want you to do. Like It would compel you. Some people said when Jonathan Edwards would preach, people would fall in the aisles and be in fear. When D.L. Moody would preach, people would just cry and weep at the goodness of God. And I wish you could like flip a switch in your sermons. But this is more of, if you look at the second part, it's how you view God's... It's up to you for this to be wrought in your life. In view of God's mercy, which means everything that came before this, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. So here's how I want to set this up. I believe he's focusing on the idea of in view of. It's the idea that you're standing on a top of a mountain, but you're looking back at what brought you here. You're looking at the journey, and you can't believe that you made it. Sort of like on a Wyoming trip, and guys go on a Wyoming trip that Mike Peru brings them on. Bill loves to get these Gatorade things. At the very beginning, you take this Gatorade, you tie it up, and you put it in a little river. And you put it in this little river so you can have it as you're coming back down. But you have to go up the mountain, you got to camp, hike for 10 days, and then you come back down the mountain, then you get to go into that river and open up that Gatorade. When you open up that Gatorade, it is the best Gatorade you ever have. But while you're drinking it, everything, oh, we did it. We're done. That's the whole idea. In view of what God did from chapters 1 to 11, it should compel you to start living chapters 12 to 16. 1 to 11 of Romans is called orthodoxy. It's teaching that should overwhelm you. 12 through 16 is orthopraxy. It's a life that should be changed. But it's all about 
viewing. So what I want to do today is I want to give you a picture or a view of Romans. I was talking to Trevor the other day, and um, he was just asking me, he said, what's your favorite book of the Bible? I said, well, what's yours, Trevor? He said, well, Colossians. And I said, well, I want to say Romans, but it feels unfair to say Romans, because Romans is a different kind of book to me. It's like it's, it's just a, it's just has everything in it. So I said, I'll pick Galatians, but to me, Romans is just, it's a, it's a amazing gift from God. I, I've never read a book like it. There's no book that's ever been like it. But for some people, it seems very confusing. I think it's really easy. I think it's the easiest book in the New Testament because it follows a pattern. But up to chapter 12, he's just giving the journey that all of you have been on. And this journey, if you understand it correctly, it should change you. So I'm going to do it as simple as possible. I'm going to give you an overview of Romans 1 through 11 in four movements. The first one is this. It's actually two movements for the first part. It begins with our offense. Go to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And I want you to look at verses 18 to 22. And this is what I call the beginning of the journey. So imagine we are here looking back, and this is the path that led us here. This is the beginning of the path. This is where everybody started on the path. And it begins by saying, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal men and birds and animals and reptiles. So all of that, that's a lot in one breath. But all he's saying is this. Here's what he's saying. He's basically saying, we spurn the love of the lovers. So if you look in verse 20, he says, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. In other words, God has given you a world that is unbelievable. Psalm 19 says the heaven declares the glory of God. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they declare his wonder. God has given you good and perfect gifts that you can enjoy every day. That child that God allowed your family to have, that's a gift and you look in that child's face and you cannot stop looking at it. That joy you have from the child is given to you from God, the lover who has given you everything you've ever wanted. In fact, every joy, I just read this, every joy you've ever experienced, every good thing was first given to you by God. It's funny, like you watch X Games and you have all these guys with tattoos and they're going down giant slopes on the mountains thinking they're so cool. Like, look at how I went down that mountain, dude. Who made the mountain? Who gave the adrenaline to feel that rush? Or people who think they're cool because they can have sex with somebody. Who invented sex? God kind of did. That joy? Oh, we're not supposed to talk about that. 
But every good gift is given to you from God. But here's what this says. We don't care. We suppress the truth. Let me show you how it looks in the Old Testament. Go to Jeremiah 2. This is the saddest. Jeremiah 2. You got to read it from God's perspective. And it's intended to be read from God's perspective as it relates to us. So Jeremiah is in the middle of the Old Testament, right after Psalms and Isaiah. Jeremiah is a prophet that was writing to Israel on behalf of God, and his heart is broken. They call Jeremiah the weeping prophet, and you'll see why. In fact, some people say Jesus was the most like Jeremiah. But Jeremiah chapter 2, and I want to begin in verse 1. This is from God's perspective. Listen to what he says. So I don't think you hear this too often. I want you, here's what I want to try to do. I want you to empathize with God. Often we want God through prayer to empathize with us. Have you ever, this is kind of like a prayer from God to you. Please listen to me. Verse 1 of chapter 2. The word of the Lord came to me, that's Jeremiah, go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. He says, I remember the devotion of your youth. I was a bride, you loved me. So stop there, God's saying, do you remember when we were first married? Oh, I remember you. You were beautiful. Your devotion for me was wonderful. It was great. And then he says, what he's talking about is early on when God called Israel as a nation out of Egypt. Then he says, and followed me through the desert, through a land not sown. So here's God and his bride, and his bride will follow him anywhere because she's in love with him. And then verse 3, Israel's holy to the Lord, like Israel's his, she's mine, all mine. Not the rest of the world, holy means separated for me, exclusively mine. Israel is exclusively mine. The first fruits of harvest. All who devoured her were held guilty, meaning if anybody went after my bride, man, God laid the heavy on it. And he did. He, remember, he opened up the Red Sea on Pharaoh and then he closed on him into because God's in love with his young bride. All who devoured her were held guilty. Disaster overtook them. Verse 4. And then something switches. He says, Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, all you clans of the house of Israel. So God is saying, I want you to listen to my heart for a second. Verse 5. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your fathers find in me that they strayed so far from me? Here's what God's saying. What's wrong with me? Why do you have to leave? Why, why, why do you leave me for everything else the world has to offer? What's wrong with me? Why did you spurn me? And then verse... Basically, verse 11, it's a cry of his heart. He says, uh, has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet there are no gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glory for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, O heavens, and shudder with great horror. My commit, my people, and like he says, O heavens, shudder with great horror. Like he's saying, bear witness to how people have just turned away from me. And they've given up the great God and they've changed it for little idols that they made with their own hands out of wood. 
And he said, um, my people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and dug their own cisterns. They've kind of uh, given up the water of life for their own garbage sewage. I heard of this case where this kid was given a, in a will from a grandfather an old baseball card. On a swag. It's worth $2 million. But the kid didn't know it. It's an old baseball card. As some old guy in the front. Onus Wagner, who's that? And a buddy traded him a Pete Rose card for 50 cents on Onus Wagner. That Onus Wagner card is worth $2 million. We, chain, we trade the immortal God, the God of glory, for filth. And that's movement one. So Romans one, if you go back to it, Romans one is very simple. God who made this beautiful world and world that we should see is glory. It says in verse uh, 21, and here's where I'm getting the spurned idea, verse 21, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. They suppressed the truth. That's verse 19. They just don't want him. They went after other lovers. So here's what happens. So the next part of Romans, which really begins in chapter 2 all the way to 3, 11, they get caught up. So they leave God and they decide to go out in their own path. They leave the path of God that was shining, full of light, and they end up going into this path that leads them into thorns and thistles and thickets and quicksand and monsters and garbage, filth. And that's what the second part is, is our corruption became total. Once we left our lover, we had no lover that took care of us anymore. We're left on our own, and we became totally corrupt. Look at verse 11. The end of verse 10 of Romans 3, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They've become worthless. Like even to the point where, verse 18, there's no fear of God before the eyes. So what happened is they left the lover, who was the greatest, and they turned into this dark swampland where the spell began to descend from the prince of the power of the air. And not only do we, not only do we think we can do it on our own, we hate the lover. We hate him. And there should be this Pause when we read Romans 3, and it ends in Romans 3.23. All have sinned. Everybody has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's this big, there's this big dispute about, so you mean I have to live a life of eternity for one small sin? No, here's the deal. One small sin, small less sin, reveals the condition of sin which is in me. If you've ever sinned, James says you're guilty of all sin because one sin reveals that you are a sinner. A sinner is a person who has spurned his lover and has gone his own way and now is under the spell. So here's a question. As you look, let's say we don't know the rest of the story. We only see right there. Let's say somebody did this to you. You gave somebody who you are in love with everything. You gave them all your money. You gave them a house. You just loved them. And they spurned you. They took all your money. 
They destroyed your house, and they went after other lovers. How would you respond? I was talking to a guy that was really, really mad about the elections this week. Like, really mad. And he said, there's one, I don't understand how some people could vote for one of these propositions. And he goes, I really, he said this, he goes, I, I hate them. I said, wait a second. I said, what did you say? He goes, I'm sorry, I just kind of hate them. I think God is going to destroy them. I said, before you go there, do you realize I probably would have voted that before I knew Jesus? All those people we're angry at are me. I, too, spurned God, and I, too, was lost in the thickets of thorns and thistles about, oh, it was 20 years ago, uh, the MSU team won the national championship basketball team and on campus in Lansing. They flipped cars, they burned houses down, and all the students were going crazy in a riot. And everybody's like, what's wrong with those kids? What's wrong with those kids? And I, you know, as a youth pastor, so I was kind of mad too, you know, those rotten state fans, those rotten, <laughs> rotten state fans. And I realized, you know what, I probably would have done the same thing before Jesus saved. I probably would have lit the match. We all are there. That's the point. That is the point of Romans. All of us are on that path. That's where it begins, but here's where it starts. Do you believe that? Because I think people who are under the spell think this book is just an old, crusty book that Gandalf found in the White City. But it's about us, which leads us to part two, because the question is, what is deserved? Really, what is deserved in this path? It's pretty obvious. Romans 1 says wrath. But here's what's really weird about Romans. It takes a strange turn at the end of 3, verse 25. And all of a sudden, I would almost say Romans 3 Verse 25 switches the story. It's the switch. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement. Who's him? His son. His son. So here's what happened. God's response to my sin, it's not pounding. It's sending his son to do what? Oh, atone for my sins. Atonement means to basically substitute. So here I am caught in the thicket. And God the Father sees how I spurned him and I am wicked. So he takes his bow and he starts pulling it back, ready to shoot it. It's got it aimed. Right before he lets it fly, his son steps in front of the arrow and takes it for me. And the arrow was the cross. He took it for me. So you could say it like this. The next movement in Romans, from Romans 3.25 to Romans 4, is if I believe that, that's the, that gets me out. That saves me from wrath. And I don't do anything because I couldn't do anything stuck and lost. Jesus had to come rescue me. So what I do is I see his dead body and he saved me. So do I just say, thanks, man. I'm just going to keep going back in this rotten thicket. 
I'm gonna, I should be overwhelmed. Jesus, you died for me? The one who spurned the Father? It's, it's really overwhelming. Like, so Romans says, verse 25, he did this, in the middle of verse 25, he did this to demonstrate his justice. That means God punishes sin because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So verse 27, where then is the boasting? Meaning, I didn't do this, Jesus did. I didn't do it. And then the coolest part, so after he saves me, the coolest part is Romans 5 to 8, the value of the free gift. So the question is, before, what is deserved? What does a, a lover who spurns their lover deserve? What does a lover who goes into garbage deserve? We would say they deserve hatred, like that guy told me. But God loved us in that condition. So he saved me when I was in bad shape. And then what he does, he gives me everything. He gives me Romans 5. Begins, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. So we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 2. Now we've entered this place called grace, which we now stand. Which we now stand. And then he says, and suffering in grace leads us to perseverance, perseverance, hope, and hope makes us not ashamed. So then he gives answers to our brokenness. And then he says in Romans 5, 5, and you, the Holy Spirit is poured out on us. So wait, I spurn the lover and I get the Holy Spirit. I get God himself. Yep, that's the deal. That makes no sense. Exactly. It's called mercy. It's called mercy. And it continues. Romans 6 says, I cannot live for righteousness. Romans 7 says, I will battle it. But Romans 8 Therefore, there, even though you battle sin, there's no more condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The middle of Romans 8 says, hey, you know all that pain you suffered? It's not worth anything to the glory that's going to be revealed in you in heaven. Just will you wait. So I get everything. I get everything. And that leads us to Romans 12.1. Go to Romans 12.1 again. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view, in view of God's mercy, as I look back, how should I act? How should I live? What should I do? So you're at the top of the cliff. You realize that you've been given your life back. You've been given so much more. How do you feel at this point? And this is where I wish I could just like really, you know, like preach like that and say, you need to believe, you know, that kind of preaching where you're like, hey, man, you know, I wish I could do that. But, but it's not, the Bible doesn't work like that because it fades. That stuff fades, you know, that fades. I once I went to this guy uh, that would preach, he's this black preacher, he goes, you know, when the devil comes, hit him. Hit him with the Bible. Hit him. And he just kept saying, hit him. Hit him. And I left that sermon. I'm going, hit him. And everybody in the streets are like, what's wrong with you? You know, you can't live like that. So the, the question is, what do we do? In view of God's mercy, 
Do you believe you've been given mercy? That's the first question. Yes, I do. Then change. That's the next part. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices. The interesting thing, in the Old Testament, if I sinned, I'd give a sacrifice. I'd give a sacrifice. I would give either, you know, a lamb or a bull, or a couple doves, and they would cut the neck, drain the blood, and the animal would die. They'd be a dead sacrifice. This is different. We need to live. Like really live. Sometimes, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, I'm kind of keeping a secret up here with you. Sometimes, this is who I am. Life's so hard, I would sometimes like to be a martyr, you know, when you die for Christ and everybody thinks you're great. You know, wouldn't it kind of be, Aaron, this is a really bizarre thought. Sometimes I'd wish, you know, like, wouldn't it be cool like the Muslim guy grabbed you and put you on TV and I wouldn't recount for Jesus and he'd slice me and I'd die and he'd make me a martyr. <laughs> Look at that guy, he died for Christ. Oh, but he dies for Christ. You know what's, it's harder to live for Christ. Where I don't want to be happy. I want to be grumpy. And God says, why don't you rejoice today? I don't want to. It's too hard. It'd be easier to be cut by a terrorist. It really is hard to live for Christ. But offer your bodies. Offer it up and say, all right, God. This is your life. Let me show you something interesting. Go to Malachi. It's the very last book. In the Old Testament, Malachi 1. Sometimes God in the Bible is so like, ouch, ow, ow, like Bob Wiley, ow, ouch, this hurts. Malachi 1 is that ouch passage, like, oh. So in the Old Testament, they'd offer lambs and bulls and that kind of stuff. So here's what you do. If I sin... Let's say I hit TJ across the face, bam, in front of everybody. I'm like, oh, man, i got to go to the priest to offer an animal. So I bring the animal. I'm supposed to bring my best. That's how I worship. I give the first fruits, my best. But here in Israel, they weren't doing that. Watch what God says in chapter 1, verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I'm a father, where's the honor due me? This is God talking to Israel. If I'm a master, where's the respect? So if you call me father or master, don't you want to treat me that way? Well, what did, but you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? What did we do wrong, God? You know, we, we offered sacrifices. Here's what he says in verse 7. You placed defiled food on my altar. How have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you bring crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. So here's what he's saying. When you worship God, you're supposed to bring the best to show that you worship him. But Israel was bringing him blind and crippled animals that didn't cost a dime. He was not bringing his best. They were bringing their worst, but saying, we did our job. We did our duty. We did our religious duty. Yeah, but you offered your garbage animals. Yeah, but we did our duty. You're supposed to offer God your best. Question, when you live your life, what kind of animal do you offer God? Your best? 
or your tired, cranky self? Do you use your best for the fun things, entertainment, hanging with your friends, or do you use your best when you come to worship God or even pray or serve? Where is your best used? On what efforts? If you really are grateful, and I mean if you're grateful and it's bubbling up out of you, you'll just want to do what he says all the time. I don't know how to explain it. I was, um, next couple weeks we'll give you more instruction on how you do that. But to me, if I really look over my path and I really believe I deserve wrath, and then Jesus came in, I got to change. Man, he did everything. I'll give you an illustration on this. And I, uh, I would just say gratitude doesn't want to go back to the person that you were before you were saved. And I, I asked, uh, some people will tell me they like stories of my dad. Sometimes I feel I talk about my dad too much, but it's who God gave me as an illustration, and, I, and it makes sense to me. So I want to tell you a story about my dad. And somebody even at first service said, don't ever apologize. Sometimes the pulpit's not about me, but it, it helps bring out what I think Romans 12, 1's trying to elicit out of you. So... One summer, I took my wife and my four kids to visit my dad in Cleveland, and it was in August, and my dad was not doing well, I could tell. Normally, he's robust, and you'd run around. This time, he's a lot tired, really tired. And I'd say, Dad, you doing okay? And my mom could hear me talking to my dad, and she goes, ah, oh, he won't go to the doctor. He's stubborn. And my dad was stubborn. He would never go to the doctor. He'd always try to make these weird Indian herbs, and if he drank this down... He thought it, he had this thing called jog and a jug. It was the weirdest thing. He put like vinegar and all this weird stuff in it. He goes, Chris, you take one drink of this, it's like you went jogging 10 miles. You know, he'd drink it, he'd sweat. Like, Dad, what is this? He had these weird remedies, but he hated the doctor. And he wouldn't go, and he was just tired. And I remember driving home, talking to my wife, well, my dad didn't look good. She goes, yeah, he doesn't look good. That week, I'm thinking about him, praying about him. The thing about my dad, my, when my dad's dad, my grandfather died, my dad was angry for about a year and a half, like, because he missed his dad. And my mom said, yeah, it was tough for him to even to go into church for that year and a half until he worked on it. So I asked, you know, I'm, I'm talking to God. I said, God, if my dad died, what would I do? I'm a, I'm a pastor. Would I not be able to preach? What, what would happen? And I, I really didn't know, because I don't know what that feeling is like. So two days later, I get a call at 11 o'clock at night, and my dad died. It was overwhelming. My wife said, we're going to go to Cleveland in two days, and I want you to take the whole next day off. So I took the whole next day off. I made a big bonfire in my backyard, and I just would throw logs on there. And I thought I'd be angry. I don't know what I'd, what I'd be, but here's what happened. This is what happened in real time. I started having flashbacks of my life. You know, like my dad Showing me how to throw a football, how to cut the lawn, how to crack a peanut, taking long walks with my dad. I remember swimming in in Atlantic Ocean, you know, and he put me on his shoulders because I was scared of sharks. Remember that? I remember all of these stories that were just incredible. I remember when he came to my installation service and gave me a letter and shook my hand and said, I'm proud of you. I remember all of them. 
So after about two and a half hours, all I could do is say thank you. I was about 40 years old at the time. And another strange burden came on me was this. Now it's your turn. Be that kind of dad. All of this memory, I'm looking back, I'm looking back over the cliff of this journey of my dad, and I realize I got to be different. I got to be different. In the same way, looking back on this journey with a re my real dad, God the Father, he saved me out of some of the worst stuff you can imagine, and he sent his son for me. And then he said, now, Chris, I am now going to exalt you you're my son, and, the spirit of, and my spirit's in you. Now, I want you to live for me. I got no other choice but to live for him. I got no other choice. Now it's my turn. So many people go back. So many people long for those old days of sin. Oh, I miss those times when I get drunk. Ah, why? Why? Anybody can get drunk. Do you know that? Anybody can drink beer and take drugs. Why is that so cool? I don't understand that. To this day, I don't get why sin seems so cool. It's not hard to get a tattoo and go drink. It's not. I'm not downing tattoos. What I'm downing is the mentality that a tough guy is a guy that can do this. Do you know what a real man is? A real man is a person who is overwhelmed by grace God, who do you want me to serve today? I'll do it. I'll even sacrifice for them. And I won't judge them. In the same way when I realized, man, I, I had to, my dad, what a gift. And a lot of people don't have a gift like my father. And I need to be that kind of person. In the same way, we do have a greater father than my, we have a perfect father. He's perfect. Live. Will you? That's gratitude. 